your name is magnified, your son Jesus is glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, good morning and good to be with you. It's good to be back. I've been, uh, I've been away for three weeks. I was here, but I wasn't preaching. And so it was good to have some time off and hear some other preachers. And they did a great job. Antonio did a great job. And Doug from Emergence. But I am excited to be back. And so let's get into it. We are in the Sermon on the Mount, finishing chapter five today. Um, two main purposes that Jesus is accomplishing through the Sermon on the Mount. One is to reveal himself as our Lord and our Savior, right? He's not just here as a good teacher or a good example. He's here as our Savior and to be our King. Uh, and the other to show, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what God's kingdom looks like. This is what life looks like in God, God's kingdom for the people who belong to him. This is what is going to, th- these are the values they're going to have. This is what they're going to do. This is what they're not going to do. Uh, showing us this is what God's kingdom looks like. And uh, this, this is a point Jesus makes at the end of the sermon but this is really where we're able to see the difference between people who, who say they follow Jesus and people who actually follow Jesus. Uh, and that's because, and we see it again and again throughout the sermon, Jesus, it, for the kingdom of God, he's rewriting our common sense. Like the way that you think the world works and the way that you think is natural and normal to act, Jesus changes that. He gives us a new normal when you become a Christian. New normal. Remember we all hated that phrase to death in 2020? And uh, I don't hear it so much anymore. But you know what? Jesus is redeeming it. The new normal, when you're a Christian, it's so, so different from the old one. It's glaringly obvious. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that my pe- you're, you're like a city on a hill. You can't be hidden. Uh, one of the most prominent places this new normal shows up is in how you treat people. It's not the only place it shows up. It shows up in your, in your personal conduct, in the decisions you make, and how you structure your life, and things like that. But one of the more prominent ways that this new normal shows up is in how you treat people, and in what the, the teaching we're looking at today, how you treat certain people or certain kinds of people. And so let's start verse 43. Jesus said this, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I, uh, we plan our sermons out way in advance and it was pointed out to me when I uh, was giving the guys in the back the title for the sermon today, Love Your Enemies. It's kind of funny. It falls on Mother's Day. Um, I hope your mom's not your enemy or your mother-in-law or anything. You should, but even if they are, you have to love them. So there you go. Uh, this is, this is the last time in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is going to follow the pattern that we've been seeing through the majority of chapter 5, where he goes, uh, you've heard it said this, and he, uh, he quotes from the Old Testament, from the Law of Moses, and then he goes, but I say to you this, and, uh, and, and you're probably sick of hearing it because we say it every single week, but it's so significant because Jesus is giving himself an equal authority with the Word of God. Even in a way, it doesn't show up in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, they say, thus says the Lord, like God told me to say this. Jesus goes, I'm saying this to you. And he can do that, because he is the Son of God. Um, But what's a little different with this one from the ones that come before, you've heard it said, but I say to you, is that the first part, love your neighbor, that's in the law of Moses. It's in Leviticus. We can can point to it, and we know where it is. Um, You've heard it said, hate your enemy, 
That's not commanded anywhere in the law of Moses or the rest of the Old Testament. And in fact, the Old Testament instructs you to treat your enemy in a way that it'd be hard to say that that's hating them. And so just two places we'll look. First in Exodus 23, and this is part of the law of Moses, it says this, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. When I was in middle school, we had this dog, Max. And he was a small dog, he's like a giant rat. And there was something wrong with Max, just mentally, spiritually, something. Like he was, there were problems, okay? I think we got him from a puppy mill. It was before people cared about that. Um, and so he, one of the things, this isn't the only problem with him, but uh, he would run away at like the first chance. And it's not because we were abusive, but he just liked to run away. And, uh, and so then my brothers and I, because we were in middle school, we'd go chasing after him around the block and sometimes even like further through town and take hours to get him back. It was horrible. And one thing that would uh, always happen in that experience is there'd be neighbors who were out who were really nice who would try to help us. Um, Honestly, looking back, maybe the most loving thing for everyone involved would have just been to pray for Max and leave him in the Lord's hands, just see what happens. Maybe he'll come, because he thought it was like a game. And uh, anyways, an ancient agricultural society, like the one where the law of Moses is given to, um, they're not just pets. You know, these are fairly significant assets and so if you see the, the donkey or the ox of a person that, that hates you or that you have some sort of enmity or strife with, if you see it wandering away, God's law says you don't get to look at that and just go, well, it's not my job, it's not my prob. Uh, it is your job and your prob because even though that person may hate you, there's still someone who is made in the image of God and God still wants you to do good to them. That's the attitude that God wants for his people, even towards the people who may hate them. Uh, another place, Proverbs 25, look at this, says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Uh, Proverbs, this is Solomon, it's not Moses, but it's still God's word. And again, God's word says, take care of your enemies. Like, make sure that their needs are being met. And when you do that, uh, it's like heaping burning coals on their head. It's obviously a metaphor. And I think it's a metaphor that, that will give them kind of that burning uh, sensation of shame where you go, I've hated this person. I've treated them so badly, and yet they love me, and they're taking care of me. And so you have you know, regret and shame over the way that you felt towards it, and maybe that's something that, that works in changing you and how you feel about them. Uh, just like Antonio, our elder, he quoted from Romans last week, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That it actually does have the chance to have like a changing, transforming effect when you meet evil with good. It, it, it can make change. It begs the question, why is Jesus saying this? Why is he saying you've heard it said to hate your enemies when that doesn't exist in the Old Testament and it doesn't even exist in uh, the, the broader sort of rabbinic teaching that we've had access to for so long? Why is he saying it here? 
for a long time, we didn't know for sure, just kind of a suspicion, but after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found uh, some of the teaching of that community who was keeping the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran community, and um, they were a very strict sect of Judaism. They were very concerned with personal holiness, and part of their teaching that we've recovered said that you shall uh, love all the sons of light and you shall hate all the sons of darkness, right? Love all the people who are within your own community who think the same and believe the same and act the same as you, and everyone who falls outside of that, you can go ahead and hate them. Uh, It's not a widely held teaching across all of Judaism, but it was present enough at the time of Jesus that he addressed it here in the Sermon on the Mount. And to be honest, even if it's not something that's expressly taught, you don't need to be taught that. That's just what we do. That's the normal that that people do. Uh, People treat you well, you're more inclined to treat them well, and if people hate you, then it's easy to go, well, fine, I hate you too. You know, you treat me badly, fine, I'm gonna treat you badly. And, And we just go equal measure, what we receive is what we get, and what we give is what we get back, and that's kind of the normal for how we work. Now, this what gave me a lot of trouble as, uh, as a newer Christian in my reading of the Bible because you always see in the Bible enemies and how to treat your enemies. And uh, I would read that and go, look at my own life. I don't have enemies. Like, I don't know how to apply any of this. Um, like, I don't have, like, I don't know, like a supervillain, like a anything. Like, there's no, I mean, maybe you have that, but I don't think most of us have someone who's just like out to get you. Um, and I think, you know, if you do have that, uh, that person is certainly included in your enemies that the Bible instructs you how to behave towards them. But I think where this teaching most broadly applies and where it started to really click in a sense for me is in groups of people. So like at the national level, who are your enemies? At the political level, who do you look at as enemies? Within the church, at like a denominational at, or other church, like who do you look at as the enemy? Um, for some people at the, at the racial level, who do they see as enemies? That's where you see this showing up so much because it, you don't have to think hard or, or you know, really scrutinize to find examples of you know, some Republicans who just hate Democrats and they think they're evil, they think they're awful, they think they're purposely trying to destroy this country and take everything from them, and they hate them. And you can find the same from some Democrats who really hate the Republicans and think the same nasty, awful things about them, and they're just so dead set against each other, there's a visceral hatred they hold towards one another. And there are people who I'm sure, and maybe in the same political camps, who, uh, who hate, you know, Russia, China, Iran, Pakistan. Um, And there are people there, I'm sure, who hate us. There are, in in Christianity, in churches, there are people who belong to a certain denomination or expression of faith with, um, you know, doctrinal beliefs or, or ways that they practice parts of their faith who will look at people outside of that expression or outside of that doctrine and label that person as an enemy and really have contempt in their heart for people who belong to that other group. And I'm not saying that, um, 
that, that some of those uh, ways of understanding different parts of Christianity are not important. Like, uh, doctrinal beliefs matter, especially the, the primary central ones. Like, those really matter, and there are, there is false teaching, and we have to be aware of that and on guard about that. Um, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, like, people who do baptism a little bit differently, uh, you know, people who, who have the same essential beliefs but belong to different denominational structures, like, they just hate each other. They look at each other as enemies. It's along these divides that most people become aware of, like, okay, who do I actually look at as an enemy? As someone who's, like, out to get me, you know? Someone who, who hates me just, just for who I am. And, and that's where you can kind of find, well, those are the people who are my, my enemies. As an aside... If you spend a lot of time online or watching the news, and you also find yourself very angry a lot of the time, there's a chance those are connected. And uh, ironically, I got this advice from online. This is a funny thing people say online for people who are just so plugged in and so filled with rage about all the things that they see in media online or the news. And they say, what you need to do is you need to go touch grass. And uh, I, I love that advice because, you know, they're basically saying, like, put down your phone, unplug, go outside, be in the real world, and it'll do you some good. And that's true. Um, you know, media, they, they make a lot more money when they make you angry or afraid because you're more, you know, glued to what they're showing you. And so they have an incentive to show you certain things. But if you just, like, get out into the real world, if you just touch grass, I know it sounds patronizing, but like some of you need to touch grass. Uh, if, if you just do that and you go out into the real world, I, I'm not saying the world is not like a messed up place at all. Or there are not awful things happening. But if you go and you just see people in real life, I think you'll see there's a lot more good in the world than the media tends to display. And it could do wonders for uh, your, your emotional state. So... Anyways, this, this is where Jesus is giving a, uh, Christians a warning that if you are someone who belongs to the kingdom of God, you can't do this. You can't follow the teaching of uh, love your neighbor, but you can hate your enemy. You can't do that. It's not an option. And what can easily happen, and you've seen it happen with Christians, especially who are uh, pretty legalistic, pretty focused on, on you have to keep the rules, everyone has to keep the rules, everyone has to do the right thing. Um, in an effort to keep themselves holy, they, they reject or they ignore what God says about being kind to their enemies. And they can, you know, kind of justify, like an, uh, the ends justify the means because these people are terrible and if we just let them do what they're gonna do, it's gonna have terrible effects and so we can be terrible to them. Uh, the irony is they're trying so hard to be holy that they're sinning. And, and being holy is a good thing. The desire to be holy is a good thing, but you have to understand part of holiness is showing kindness even to people who don't like you or don't agree with you. For Jesus, there's no such thing as an end justifies the means mentality uh, where, where you can treat people terribly because of you know, what they believe or how they think or, or, or what they might do and, and you need to you know, cut off their influence and, and so you can be terrible to them. Uh, in fact, here's what Jesus says. Here's what Jesus says and he couldn't make it more clear. He says, but I say to you, 
love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus uh, repeats the same thing that we've been seeing in the Old Testament in, in Exodus and in Proverbs about being kind to your enemies, but he strengthens it, right? When he says, you know, you, the law says love your neighbors, and I'm saying love your enemies, he's putting enemies in the same category as your neighbors. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. That's not the only time that Jesus does that. Uh, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is giving that parable in response to someone who asks a question, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, love your neighbor. He's like, okay, who's my neighbor so that I know who I have to love and who I can get away with not loving? And so Jesus responds like this in Luke 10. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place where he saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. In the parable, the man who's injured is a Jewish person. He's going from Jerusalem. He's badly hurt, and he's passed over by a priest and a Levite. These are religious leaders. And, uh, and this is a parable, but, um, but you can imagine that the reasoning they're using for passing over this man who needs their help, these, these are the religious leaders, is because if uh, he's covered in blood and if I go and touch that guy and help him, it's gonna put me in a state of being ritually unclean. And if I'm ritually unclean, I won't be able to go and perform the service at the temple that I'm required to do. And, and that is more important than taking care of this guy. I can't give up that. I can't give up serving God to help this person. And that justifies their decision to leave him there bleeding on the road. And then a Samaritan comes along. And Jesus picks a Samaritan for the story because there's, there's like no better example of two groups of people who just really viscerally hate each other. Uh, like to give context to this, this would be like Jesus saying that, you know, uh, uh, a black panther is helping someone from the KKK. Or someone from the KKK is helping a black panther. I'm not saying that like one of these groups is like evil like that. Um, just to, to say like these are two groups of people who are so opposed to each other, so hate each other, and yet he's the one who actually goes and, and helps this person. Jesus is saying, Listen, there, there's no limit to who your neighbor is. There's, there's not a limit, even if even your enemy is your neighbor and God tells you, you need to love your neighbor. He just makes it clear in the Sermon on the Mount, you need to love your enemy. It's not normal, it's not the normal thing to do. The normal thing to do is someone hates you and you go, well, fine, I hate you too. And if they mistreat you, fine, I'm gonna treat you the same way you treat me. What is it that allows the people of God's kingdom 
to treat people who hate them in this way. Because it's not easy. But Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen. How, how does that work? What enables the people of God's kingdom to treat their enemies in this way? Um, two things. First is the belief in God's absolute justice. Right? His wrath for sin, um, his, his absolute justice. So Romans 12, 19, Paul says this. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There's like a disconnect that happens in people's brains sometimes when you look at the God of the Bible and you see, well, he's supposed to be loving and compassionate and forgiving, and so like, why is he gonna punish sin? Why is his wrath a thing? Uh, you know, shouldn't it just all be forgiven? And the problem with that is that if God just permits everything and forgives everything freely like that, then he's basically giving a, a blank uh, a, a blank pass for you to treat people however you want, to be as awful as you want, and it doesn't matter in the end. It's not hard to see how that's not loving, right? The, the judge who lets a serial killer walk free, that's not loving to the victims. That's an extreme example, but even all the way down, that's not what justice is. We believe in a God of absolute justice. It's necessary for God to have justice for him to love and to care about the people who've been hurt. We believe in a God of absolute justice, and what that means is there's, there's no one who gets away with it in the end, right? You, you think of a guy like Jeffrey Epstein, just an absolute monster of a human being, all the horrible things he did, and he never made it to trial, right? Killed himself, allegedly. It's a little suspicious. But for some people looking at that, it feels like he got off easy. You didn't have to answer for his crimes. He didn't have to, like, he wasn't punished. He just, got, he just got out. He got off easy. I don't believe that. I believe that he has to answer to God. I believe that God is absolutely just and absolutely fair, and I'm comfortable with leaving judgment in God's hands. Because I'm comfortable leaving it in God's hands, that means I don't have to take it upon myself to make sure that anyone pays for, for what they did. That's what allows Christians to have so much uh, forgiveness and compassion and grace, even towards people who do horribly unjust things. Because if you didn't believe that, if you didn't believe that God ultimately makes all things right, you'd feel so much more compelled that I need to do something to make things right. And it can make you feel like you're going crazy for all the people who are seemingly getting away with it, right? Like any super wealthy person who you know did something awful, but because they have so much money, and they, they don't really have to pay for it, and it seems like there's two separate justices, uh, justice systems for, for people who are wealthy and influential and people who are powerless, and you, that, that'll drive you crazy. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. We can afford to be uh, full of forgiveness and compassion and grace because we know that ultimately judgment rests with God. Now, I don't think that means that we just let everyone go free, and you know, I think that courts and the justice system and our law enforcement, those all have an important place in the world, in our lives, but that's at like the, the, the civil governing bodies level. That's not at the individual level, 
it's no one's individual responsibility to carry out justice. That's what Paul's saying, like don't take vengeance yourself. Leave it in the hands of God and sometimes God will act through the systems that we have in place. Does that make sense? God's absolute justice allows us to love our enemies and show grace to them. The second thing that allows us to do that, to love our enemies, is Jesus himself and what he's done for us in the gospel. And now if you're here today and you're like not a Christian, you're exploring faith for the first time or you're re-exploring, you've, you've been away for a while and, uh, and, and maybe you're not super clear on it, the gospel, that just means good news. It's the good news of what Jesus has done for us, what he's done for you. And so Paul says this in Romans 5, he says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. See, this is what's so different about Jesus and about being a Christian. Like compared to any other faith system on the planet, Jesus tells us, he gives us the instruction, he says, love your enemy." But doing a good job at loving your enemy is not what gets you salvation. It's not what gets you God's love. Love your enemy is what Jesus has done for you so that you can have salvation. You receive God's love while you're still a sinner. And that's what changes you and changes your heart so that increasingly, more and more, you can go and love your enemy. Do you see the distinction there? It's really, really important that you get this. Um, in, in our sin, we are enemies of God. And sin is more than just breaking God's rules or, or making mistakes or messing up. It's more than that. Uh, our sin is the, the state of existence we're in where we look at God and we look at what he says and we don't really care. We want to live the way that we want to live and any time we want to, I get to say no to God even though he's our creator and he's given us life, he's created this universe, he's made everything in it, all that you are and all that you have all comes from him and yet you give yourself, as I've given myself, a higher authority than we give to God. And we constantly make choices that he's explicit in telling us this is wrong, this, this, this is evil, this doesn't lead to good, this is gonna lead to brokenness, it's gonna lead to people being hurt at a point in time where we are doing that and our backs are firmly set against him. And we say, I, I don't care about you, I don't care about what you say, even maybe you know, blaming him for, for consequences of our own foolish actions. That is when Jesus goes to the cross and pays the debt for your sin that you could never afford to pay on your own. Vengeance is mine, I'll, rep I'll repay. The, the wrath of God falls on Jesus. The normal way that people treat one another is to be kind to their neighbors, the people who are, who are like them, who look like them, think like them, belong to the same community. Um, and that's easy, relatively speaking, because that's one of the ways that you just make life easier on yourself. If you have a good relationship with your neighbors, the people who are around you that you're involved with throughout your life, they're gonna treat you well also. You know, if, you, if you're a jerk to all your neighbors, your life will be harder. 
My wife and I, we just moved in October, and we live in Rockaway now, and when you move, you get new neighbors, and so I have this next-door neighbor, uh, a guy named Pablo, and uh, Pablo's great. He's, uh, he's always outside, and, and I'm outside a lot, and so we, we talk a lot, and he's always offering to help me, and he's um, just really friendly, and I'm glad, right? Uh, because even if you have a great house and you have a terrible neighbor, like that could make your life miserable. Uh, you don't want that. So um, I'm, I'm glad I live next to Pablo. But you know what? I was reading this this week and I started thinking, oh, I thought we were friends. Uh, no, just kidding. Um, he really is a nice guy. If Pablo, you're not here, but you're welcome here. Uh, Jesus says, like, that's what everyone does. It's a good thing to do, but that's what everyone does. And if you want to be my friend, we do that. Jesus says, that's when you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. When you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you, that's when you may be the sons of your Father who's in heaven. And that's, that's one of the rewards Jesus is talking about. There's an increased closeness with God, and there's also this position of being a son of God. And just as a quick aside, um, some Bible translations, maybe some of the ones that you have, if you're looking at that verse here today, some translations will say, will say something like, so you may be sons and daughters of your father who's in heaven. And um, you know, there are places in the Bible it's very appropriate to do that because language changes. There, for a long time, people would say man, and they meant mankind, like all human beings, men and women, and we don't use that as much today as we once did, and so there are parts where, where you'll see uh, brothers and sisters addressed, and in the original text it was just brothers, because it was a general address for everyone. Um, we shouldn't do that with this verse, though, to make sons and daughters of your father who's in heaven. Um, th- there's a reason that the reward for loving your enemy is, is you may be a son of your father who's in heaven because in their society, this is actually, it's a position that has uh, a, a legal significance to it, to be the son. Uh, the son is the one who'd receive the inheritance of the father. Right? All the belongings of the father would pass to the son in the inheritance. And the daughters, they would marry and they would become part of the family that they marry into. And that's just how they handled passing down the inheritance. Uh, Jesus, by teaching that, listen, if you, like the men and the women who are gathered at his feet, who want to be his disciples, he's saying, you all may be sons of your father who's in heaven. You all may share in the inheritance of all that belongs to the father. You can receive that. Right, men and women. And the way that you receive it is to be so changed by Jesus and by what he's done for you that you become someone who loves your enemy as Jesus has loved you. And I just think about like how different the world would be, how different things would look if every Christian took this seriously and loved their enemies love the people who, who hate them, love the people who disagreed with them. And love doesn't mean that you agree with everything that the other person thinks or says or does. But it does mean that you're not nasty to them. You, know, you think of who Jesus' enemies are. Jesus was surrounded by enemies his whole ministry. I mean, the Romans are enemies, the, the religious leaders are enemies, and you see Jesus 
he does disagree with them and he does call them out. But he doesn't, I don't know, he doesn't attack them in, in any under nasty to someone and, and you're not gonna you know, gossip about power and you have the opportunity to do it that you actually do. You actually do take it like the Good Samaritan, right? If you had a, a neighbor who is really nasty to you, but then, you know, they broke their leg or they had something, their mom got sick, you, you pray for them, you help take care of stuff at their house or whatever it is, like, you actually show up in, in the ways that you're able to when you have the opportunity not like uh, you see the donkey walking away and you go, oh, that's not my, like, no, you, you do the good that's in, in your power to do for them. Loving your enemy means that you're forgiving, you're compassionate, you're patient. If Christians really were growing every day to be more loving like Jesus is loving because they're changed by Jesus' love for them, like, that's the kind of church that I think we all want to be in. Not perfectly, no one's gonna do it perfectly, but moving in the right direction and every time you notice in yourself, like, oh, I really do have hate towards this, this group of people that I see as the enemy or they see me as the enemy, to, to identify that and say, I need to repent of that, I need to change. Jesus has more grace for me, I need more grace for them. And let me be clear, this is what real Christians do. Like, this is not an optional. This is not like, well, if you make it to varsity Christian, you'll start doing this. Uh, This is a change that Jesus makes in you. He's teaching what the kingdom of God is like, not the way that he hopes it could one day be, okay? Uh, And again, he makes it clear at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there are people who think they're following Jesus, they think they're in his kingdom, and they're actually not. They say they follow Jesus with their words, but with their actions, they're proving that they don't. Jesus ends this part of his teaching with this in verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is a hammer of a verse to end with, right? And not just any hammer. This is like Mjolnir, Thor's hammer for those of you who are uncultured. Um, Absolutely crushing this verse. What do we do with that? You have to be perfect. Jesus said that. What do you do with that? The first thing you should do when you get to any difficult part in Scripture is to look at the context so you can get the full picture of what Jesus is saying, and that's what we're supposed to do here. And what we do for here is we read backwards over what Jesus has already said in the Sermon on the Mount to this point. Um, Three places that really... um, identify what this teaches about that one. But reading backwards, go to verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Right? You must be perfect, but remember, Christ came to fulfill the law for you. Right? Jesus came to do the things for you that you couldn't do for yourself. Jesus lives the perfectly righteous life and then he gives his record of righteousness to you as a gift on the cross. And he did that for you because he can't do it for yourself. And that might make you feel 
a certain kind of way, like a little bit down about yourself, like I, I'm not able to, I need that, like, you know, just feeling inadequate and low. But that's where we have to read back even further to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the very first thing Jesus says. Read this from verse two. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, your, your spiritual poverty, all the ways that you're not enough and you don't measure up to what you're supposed to be or what you were made to be by God in the beginning. You can't be enough on your own. You're not perfect. But what does Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're going to be so much happier, so much more fulfilled when you stop trying to be enough on your own and you recognize your need for Jesus and that he's enough for you. I keep like a handful of phrases in my back pocket that, um, that are just kind of succinct and they help me to stay grounded in the truth of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel. And I'll pull them out in sermons, but I always pull them out for myself. I just remind myself of these things. One of those phrases is, I have a great need for Jesus, and I have a great Jesus for my need. You have a great Jesus for your need. You don't have to be perfect. You are perfectly loved, perfectly forgiven, perfectly saved by him. You are God's enemy, but God loves his enemies. He sent his son Jesus to save them, to set you free. Jesus is so good. He's, he's so worthy of your trust. He's so worthy of your love and your worship and your decision to follow him with your life. If you've never done it before, but maybe you feel yourself in, in your heart just being stirred up now as you think of Jesus and who he is and what he's done, I hope that today you would make the decision to put your faith in him, to trust him, to say, I want what Jesus has done for me. I want to receive that. I want to be forgiven. I want to be saved. I want to be loved. I want to be changed by the grace that he has for me. Up today, you make that decision to put, uh, put your faith in him and to give your life to him and say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I hope that's something that each of us is doing more and more and that because he's loved us, we are then able to go and love our enemies. Let me pray for us.